Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Rundown. Today, I've got the honor of speaking with Charles Carrillo, who in 2016 founded Harborside Partners, which really is a real estate syndication company that focuses on the C-class properties. But additionally, Charles is a fellow podcaster, so that's exciting. We've got something in common there. But there's other things that Charles has done along the way, but he works with syndicators, bankers, passive investors, including other investors from other countries. So Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. And you have a resume that is just packed with stuff, right? So you've got just a ton of stuff in here that it's all real estate, right? But it's many different facets of it. I mean, I see here that you are dealing with passive investors, but you're also dealing with foreign investors. So you must be dealing with EB-5 investors? We don't work too much with EB-5. Uh, with EB-5, uh, not to go down a whole rabbit hole, but there's a requirement. Uh, it's $900,000 is the investment now, as we speak right now. But uh, there is, you have to bring so many jobs as well and create jobs. So I think it's like nine or 10 jobs, or maybe it's a little bit more, somewhere around 10 jobs. And that's something that's usually achieved through hotels. So you'll see a lot of hotels that are put up that are developed. Um, that are done by EB-5. They're done by foreign investors that are investing through a private equity firm that's putting that together because they can generate those jobs. Normally, when we're buying properties to do uh, value add, we're not creating those jobs. We might be taking out two managers and adding in two managers or taking out two handymen and adding two in, but there's not really a, a, a net uh, gain in uh, employees there, which we, you would have if you, you know, made a, uh, constructed a, a Marriott, for instance. So, but, but you are still working with foreign investors. Mm -hmm. How do you attract those foreign investors if they're not investing for visas? Um, it's a little different when you're foreign investors, very similar to your normal passive investors with a couple different uh, caveats. And I think, first of all, you're going to have foreign investing in real estate is not anywhere near, for the most part, what it's like in the U.S. And I say that because there's just many countries out there where you're not going to be able to cash flow like we do in the U.S. So we're talking about, you know, cash on cash uh, and the higher single digits or lower double digits. That's something that's really unheard of in a lot of real estate, especially in expensive markets. So most of the investors probably that are listening to this aren't going to be investing in, say, New York City, right? And say if we had an investor that was coming from, say, Hong Kong, um, it's very similar where there's very little, the returns are going to be minimal. The price is going to be very expensive to get in. It's going to be higher risk because you're going to have less tenants for the amount of money you're investing. So when they're coming to the U.S., they're able to uh, kind of diversify their portfolio and they're able to achieve some of the returns that us as U.S. investors have been um, experiencing and receiving for years. So would you liken that more to an appreciation style investment if they're investing in Hong Kong, you're buying it not for cash flow, but in the, uh, in the hope that in 10 years it's done the same thing that maybe LA or San Francisco has done? I have some, uh, some business associates in Hong Kong that have actually bought property in 08 and they're actually cash flowing on it with their low debt and stuff like this. But for the most part, uh, the Hong Kong Chinese market is full of, uh, they love gambling. So it's full of a lot of appreciation and you have people that want money in and they want it out. Um, they want to see a huge gains. It's a whole different program over there. When someone's, when a development's happening, they actually will buy lottery to see who can buy one of the condos in there. 
So you're putting up money and then you're actually buying. <laughs> so someone was telling me that uh, his friends were telling me he was so lucky that he actually won the lottery. Now he can purchase a place in there. He didn't win, win the unit. So it's a whole different mindset. So when you're explaining it, you know, first of all, if you have someone that's really diversifying and really wants to create wealth, um, they're going to see the importance of going to different markets outside of where they are. And, you know, a lot of Hong Kong investors are in, in, uh, investing in, uh, you know, Indonesia, M Malaysia, and these different markets. Um, they're not really going to Australia. That's a, another expensive market for the most part, like you would at, like Hong Kong or something. And um, there's not going to be that cash on cash return that we, we experience here. Um, the other thing too, is we have the very long fixed debt, which some countries do as well, but it's very nice that we have a non-recourse debt for larger multifamily and um, you're able to have that spread with your investors. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, I, I was just chuckling thinking about how that would be on your next syndication if you let your investors know you were going to be holding a lottery. Tickets were 10 bucks a piece and depending on if whether or not you were a winner, you would be able to invest in this project. Uh, there would be quite a quite a ripple of chuckles go through your, uh, through your network, I, I think, if that was the way we did it. But uh, what a great problem to have. So <laughs> how do you get into foreign markets? How do you attract foreign capital that wants to invest with you on that scale? So I, I started a podcast on this called Global Investors, but years back, I was running another business that my brother now fully runs, which is, was a payment processing company. And we had a lot of clients in Europe. And I remember, you know, you're out and you're networking with your clients and you're talking to them and they're asking about other investments and stuff and we're talking all about this and they're talking about real estate and I tell them, you know, what we're getting in real estate and this is what I do and other stuff that, you know, you're doing on the side at that point in my life and they want to know how to invest. I, you know, as a foreign investor and I said, you know, I have no idea actually. So it was something that I started uh, researching and I found out that it's not that difficult. There's a few more hoops to jump through, but it's something that's possible. And um, it's something that comes up if you read any type of commercial real estate or any type of news like that, you'll see it come up very frequently where they're grading how much money is coming in. And of course, there's more magnet like cities, I guess you would say, for international money, which would be your Miami, your New York, your Los Angeles. Um, not so much as you would hear, but it's big in like flyover countries, we would say like the Midwest, stuff like this. But um, it comes in everywhere. And mm -hmm. as the market gets hotter, they're putting money in. I think it's a little different when you're investing as a foreign investor where you don't have those returns. And there's, I'm not, you know, they're as sophisticated as us as US investors, but they're really, they're willing to take a lower return um, for something that's very solid. You know what I mean? So right. you might say, I have, I need my money to work at 10%, right? Cash on cash, something like this. They might say 6% would be perfect if it's something that's safe, if I can diversify, if it's an area that's going to grow. And these are normally the, the hot areas that we see, but it really pushes down the cap rates, the returns in those areas. Um, you know, like investing um, in Miami versus other places in Florida. I mean, it's yeah. a completely different cap, cap rate setup. You know, you mentioned uh, that, you know, Asians typically like gambling and Victoria, British Columbia has casinos there and they have seen where, uh, investors have been coming through the casinos, cashing in large amounts of money, uh, playing the tables, cashing out the money, and then going buying real estate. Uh, and that's how they're, that's, I read an article, that's how they're moving money into the country, but then they're buying real estate. The article went on to lament how cap rates were being compressed in the British Columbia area because of that practice. So tell us a little bit more about Harborside Partners and how that came to be and what your, what your focus is there. 
Yeah, so I've been investing in multifamily since 06 and commercial since 09. And um, when every real estate investor comes up to the point where they're getting deals in and they're not, they don't have uh, the ability to fund them anymore with their own, uh, 100% with their own personal capital. So that was something that when I started Harborside Partners, uh, you know, when I have a couple different partners that we work with and um, our focus was really on finding C, C plus, B minus properties right in that ballpark is what we really like in areas that are appreciating. And um, that's where we focus. We like uh, really the whole Southeast United States. We like Texas. We like the Midwest. We're staying in places that are very landlord friendly, which is what most other syndicators are doing as well. And, um, you know, we're looking for something that is, uh, it's going to be resilient to anything that happens in the market. So for instance, one of our properties we purchased last year when it went through COVID, less than 2% of our tenants lost their job because we're buying in very employment industry diversified areas. That's so key, you know, and, and you mentioned uh, most syndicators, those that aren't invested in landlord friendly areas are revamping their business plan as we speak. Uh, you and I both know that to be entirely true, Charles. When you look at going into an area, now, are you concentrated in one area or are you kind of all over the place? And how do you pick those areas? I mean, other than employment. Yeah. So there's a few different metrics. So we're, if we're working with partners and they're bringing us deals and we can review them and see exactly what we like and what we don't. And, um, you know, we're turning down most of those deals that are coming in, whether it's timing whether it's the area, whether it's a specific deal, the specific property. But the main things uh, that we're looking for is we want to see kind of an inverse relationship between crime and population and job growth. So we want to see as crime's decreasing over, say, a 20-year period, we want to see that population increasing. And we also want to see jobs increasing because the jobs is really what propels multifamily, right? So Properties I own a small portfolio in Connecticut, you know, in central Connecticut, it's not a huge growing market, right? So there hasn't been a huge population growth. So it's a very cash flow market, as we say. So there's not too much growth appreciation on the value of the property, but we're able to raise rents, you know, inflation two, three, four percent a year, maybe, and cash flow on these properties, but we're not going to see years down the road an influx. We're like in Tampa, you know, a couple of years back, we were seeing six, 7% rent increases in one year. So we're focusing on areas where there's a diversified employment. You're going to have a mix of all different types of employees that are working there in all different types of fields. So that's kind of what the jobs are the main thing is that what we're going to look for. Awesome. And then you, you have currently, you have a portfolio uh, in Harborside of about 250 doors. Mm-hmm. What, is, what are your goals for 2020 for growth and how have they been affected by COVID? Um, I think COVID's just slowed it down and it's made it a little, you know, normally when you're purchasing a property, say you're buy, we're buying a multifamily property and you're going to go through a period during due diligence, right? This is before we purchase it and we're reviewing everything, making sure that what we are told is correct is correct. And um, when we're doing that, we'll do what's called like a lease audit. And that's going to be where we're grading the leases, grading the tenants that are already in there uh, on a scale, just like you would a greater report card when you're in school. And when we're doing this process, you know, years back, you could just say, okay, this is these tenants, it's a little worse than we thought, right? We have more C's and D's than we thought, and we thought we were going to have more B's, right? And that used to not be a huge problem, especially in landlord friendly states, because you could go through the whole process of eviction, you go through it. Now, it's what you're buying is what you're getting, and probably these 
moratoriums in these areas, especially in uh, tenant-friendly states, is going to be pushed back, you know, maybe another 12 months. Right. And um, so you have to be very careful when you're purchasing it that your tenant's with you for another 12 months, paying or not, unless you, you know, you can talk to your management company and you figure something else out like uh, cash for keys or something like this. But you no, know, from, you, you just can't just uh, pay your lawyer $350 now and have them out because they haven't been paying for so many months. So it's right. something where you have to really do that due diligence on your tenants. And it slowed us down a little bit in the sense that we're now making sure that everything we have is running smoothly. We're making sure that, um, you know, our delinquencies are to a minimum and, um, you know, we're working with tenants and it's a lot more with COVID. We're spending a lot more time on asset management, which is the most important part of the whole, of the whole puzzle. You know, after you buy the building, that's when your work starts and you're going to be working with your property manager to get that property to a level that um, is going to satisfy your business plan for you and your investors. You know, you said something there that most people don't say the way that you said it. You said asset management and property management in the same sentence. And most people miss that connection that, you know, your property manager is there to manage your property. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and his goal is to get rents so that he can get his percentage. But the asset management is really the key because you are in the asset management business and a bad property manager will manage your asset with some free rent here and a little concession there. And the next thing you know, your asset is not valued at what it should be. Right. Uh, and so taking an asset management approach, just like you would with a stock portfolio or, you know, an IRA to, to look at that and go, I need to constantly be pushing this around, making sure that we're getting top dollar, doing rent evaluations, those kinds of things. How do you find that to be with your property management, getting them on board with you that just getting at least quickly is not, not the way you want to play? Yeah, especially today, that couldn't be said better. I mean, you just have to make sure that you're on the same page with the parameters. And if you're with a more seasoned property manager, they're going to know these going in and they're going to say, this is what we rent to. If the manager knows your area, which is definitely one of the most important parts of when you're picking a management company, they're going to know the tenant you're dealing with. They're going to know what they have to deal with, what they've done before to lower non-paid rents or issues with tenants and how they, how they can uh, work with them, right? Because it's when you're dealing in C-class properties, the lease doesn't always uh, hold water compared to if you're in a B or A because you're going back and if someone hasn't paid, they're going to pay a little late and this and that. And it takes the right property manager per area. So it's very important when you're picking property manager to make sure they know your asset and know your area, know your asset class, know your area. But keeping an eye on them and making sure that, hey, why are our delinquencies higher this month? Why is it taking um, four weeks to renovate this apartment where it should take uh, 10 days? And why is it taking three more weeks to rent this than it was on these other properties? And do we have to turn up uh, the heat on our marketing? And how much traffic do we need to come through that door or through the phone to get these properties rented? And that's kind of uh, going back to your gambling example. Uh, you know, the asset management's really being like the pit boss to your dealer and the dealer being your property manager and kind of you're, you're, you're over their shoulder making sure that stuff runs without going to the table and dealing yourself, right? So right. you want to make sure that um, everything is running smooth and you want to make sure that all your metrics, right, your uh, KPIs and uh, are lining up so you know if there's an issue and you can stop it beforehand. Or, hey, you know, this, this new handyman you gave to our property, he's not doing well. And he's, you know, this is an issue and we keep on having problems with this and that. 
And um, it's just stuff you have to keep on reviewing. And on the larger properties you're going to have, we usually do it like a weekly call with the property manager. And traditionally, that would be if you had a small portfolio, um, you probably only talk to them once a month or you get some emails here or there, or you get a call when something's very expensive. It's, it's not as intense. You also mentioned that, uh, you know, being on top of your expenses, you know, it's amazing to me how, how often people don't pay attention to the little expenses until, you know, now all of a sudden, instead of being in the 45%, you know, expense ratio, they're clear at 58%. And now their thought process is shot. And they're, they're having to completely retool the, you know, they can't sell the property now. Everything's been, you know, and this is just on a, on a, on a 35 or 40 unit property. You know, that's not that big of a deal. That's only, that could only be, you know, a couple thousand dollars in the first six months of a year, but that can spiral out of control because when you're magnifying that by the cap rate, you could really run into some serious mm-hmm. asset problems that a property manager looks at and goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Charles, we're, we're only $3,000 off on the rent and the expenses and everything else for the year. You should be thrilled with us. When in reality, $3,000 at a six cap yeah. just cost you a, <laughs> a little bit of money. And the other thing you mentioned was, you know, with, with C-Class, you can't really go in and go, hey, if you don't pay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin your credit. And you're going, they're, they're sitting there going, that's why I'm in this property is because is my credit isn't that great. How do you motivate your property management staff to stay on top of those things with little or no leverage? Well, t- right now we have little or no leverage. I mean, even without COVID, the leverage, like you mentioned, is not that high uh, because obviously you're, you're, if someone doesn't have the funds or you send them to collections or something like this, you're never going to get a penny. And that's the whole thing what's going on now in COVID and all the politicians that are pushing back the evictions they're saying that, oh, but they still owe the rent. They stole the rent. Well, you know, maybe in a B-class property and above, they might pay. But even in a B-minus or B-class property, you're not getting any of that money back. Right. People, people don't have those reserves. And if they're not paying rent in one month, trust me, they're not catching up with it. I'd rather just, I'd rather you've actually just give them cash for keys. Give them cash, give them keys and get them out of the property. You know, when you're dealing with the C-class property, it's really a give and take. So this, hey, this is, this is the rent's due on this day. And this is the late fee if you're paying after that time. And, um, and that's what we're going to hold. And maybe, you know, I will in my mind say on the first one, we'll let go. And I used to self-manage. I used to do it that way. I'd let you on the first one. I'd let you slide without a late fee. Unwritten. I would never tell you that. And then after that, you're going to pay the late fee. And uh, if it's one day late, you know, if it's a week late, you're going to pay that late fee on it. You know, if, you're, if someone's not contacting you or working with you on it, um, or they're not giving you some sort of money too. It doesn't have to be the full rent. That's another thing too, that I always laugh when tenants or landlords always say, you know, you can't pay partial rent and that's crazy. Um, if you owe me a thousand dollars or something, pay me 500, pay me 250. I'll take whatever. And you have to be careful though with that because that will hold back. That's if you want to keep the tenant. If you don't want to keep the tenant, you don't take any money because that will, you know, landlords state, you know, state specific that will delay your eviction and cost you a lot more money. So you, if you're keeping them, take whatever you can. If you're not, then um, don't take it, start your eviction if you can and go from there. You know, and that's kind of what we did. We, when COVID hit, the first thing we did was we communicated, you know, because so often tenants are not sophisticated communicators in business, right? And really this is a business transaction. A lot of people look at it and they go, well, that's just my tenant. No, that's the person you're doing business with because you're in an exchange of goods for services or cash for services. 
cash for a place to stay. And people missed that. And we went out and we made sure that we were talking with our tenants before. We didn't wait for them to come talk to us. You know, and we saw that similar to you, we have had uh, one person that, that, that left in the middle of the night, which that was great. We didn't even have to give them the cash, the keys, but, but we've been able to keep that dialogue going. And you're right, getting them to agree that, hey, listen, I'm getting unemployment, so I can pay you $250 a week. Um, that's great. Let's do that. And then we can worry about the rest of it later because I'm getting something. We've really kept the attitude that we want those that want to work with us, right? Because if you've got a tenant that just says, hey, screw you, I'm not going to call you back. I'm not going to deal with you. I'm not going to answer your letters. I'm not going to answer your emails. Then yeah, that's not somebody you can work with. If you've got somebody, everybody's got a great story. It's backing that story up with a couple hundred bucks that, you know, right? I mean, you can convince me that that you really are having this hard run on luck if you're willing to put a couple bucks behind it and go, hey, this is what I got. This is what I can do. I need this place to live. And it's amazing how that communication, like you're talking about with your tenant, them communicating back, going, hey, this is what I can do. This is what I can't, you know, and just yeah. really being able to pull that together is really, you're right, going to be the difference between uh, the good and the bad and the ugly come nine months from now because, you're not going to get that money. So what yeah. you got along the way is what you're going to get. Yeah. The other thing too, I like what you said is you, uh, you're moving it to a weekly schedule. That's a great way of collecting rent from people that are behind and not saying that you're going to rewrite the lease or anything, but if they owe you $800 a month and they missed, and now you're saying, Hey, pay 200 and then we'll pay like $25 a week on top of that on your Friday, right? You get paid on Friday or your money comes in on Friday. Um, whatever it is, you're turning that to someone that can't manage their money most likely or they've lost their job, whatever it is, you, you now change it to a weekly payment, right? And that makes it very simple. And you can catch issues because if they say, oh, no, I'll double you next month. Well, that's a risky situation. I'd rather get some money coming in, have them paying me, paying me. And then who knows, three weeks from now, they might stop. But I had those three weeks of payment um, already. So it's just one of those things where you're working with someone, like you said, and, um, you know, just knowing, working with people that want to work with you, and uh, like my dad always said, if you owe someone money or they owe you, always communicate. And that yeah. fixes any type of issue. And if someone you think is going to go through a problem with money or have an issue, like your clients, when you bought the building, these are all clients, these tenants. Yeah. Um, you know, talk to them and say, listen, if you have a problem, come to me. Because if not, you know, you have to go to the, I mean, I've got to pay all these mortgages and I've got to pay the guy that comes and cleans your toilet out, you know, when it gets clogged yeah. and I've got to pay all these people. Yeah, and that's, and that's exactly what we've done. And that sounds like exactly what you've done because, you know, you're right. If you look at it, you know, rent's due on the first, but they pay in advance of living there. So if you're getting mm -hmm. 400 bucks of the $800 in rent, they're not late until the 15th, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can really kind of change their mindset. You go much farther than that and you start to sound like my wife at a sale, but honey, it was 75% off, you know? Uh, but, you know, you're, you're convincing them that this is a good deal to, to do it this way. And, and, uh, you know, another thing that a, a fellow property manager uh, of mine, a good friend of mine told me is he said he always leaves the late fees on there mm. until you honor your agreement and then he forgives them. Yeah. Because when you go through eviction or you go through small claims, you, you can add the late fees into, those are fees that you paid, so they stick with the tenant. Right. So it was kind of an interesting thing because that's another little tip is you leave those on there and you go, hey, you know, I know you're late. We're going to work this out. You wanted your agreement. I'll knock the fees off after. Looking, Charles, at, at what, I mean, obviously, if you would have told me 
in January what the world would look like today, I would have uh, recommended that your family get you a custom straight jacket uh, because you had definitely lost your grip on reality. However, here we are simply eight months later than that, and the world has definitely changed. Harborside had some very definite goals for 2020 as far as what it was going to do. How well have you guys been able to execute on that plan? And what's been the difference with that execution? Uh, we've been executing just at a, a lower, just a lower percentage of uh, getting to where we were or where we want to go. So, um, but I think tell us what that was, what, what, what were you? Yeah, shooting? we wanted to do um, four different syndications this year. And um, the, the units, I don't do it by the units. That's just a metric that's used in commercial real estate, which sure. I feel is not as accurate, but just to do four different deals on great properties uh, somewhere throughout the Southeast of uh, the United States. Um, we really like a couple markets in Florida and uh, we like Atlanta. We like the Carolinas and some of these, you know, these are the areas that we we've been underwriting and looking at. And um, you know, at this point right now we're underwriting for possibly doing a second deal and that's probably where we'll end up this year. But you know, we have to make sure that all of our other properties are, everything's running smoothly. And um and also, you just have to be very careful on every deal that goes in. It's much easier, like I said, when you don't have that leverage, like you were saying, in regards to tenants, evictions, anything like this. And even if tenant evictions open up and you have to go that route, um, you're going to be backed up for months. So the thing is that you just have to know who's in your property and what they're really paying. Digging into a lot more because <clears throat> brokers send me stuff and they say, well, the collections are really good on this. And then I dig through and I say, without seeing bank statements or anything, you can look at it and say, your late fees have definitely gone up, right? They've gone up, I saw one that went up tenfold. So yes, they're paying within the month, right? But they're paying late, which goes to show the credibility of that client, uh, that tenant uh, base. And that's fine if I'm gonna get a discount. I don't mind doing that if I'm gonna take a discount and have a rocky 12 months ahead. But I'm not going to do that if I'm not getting a discount, right? And um, that's the that's, voice of experience yeah. talking right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't learn that one without getting a lump or two, did you? No. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's funny because a lot of people won't do that. They won't reconcile it back to the, the the bank account. They won't dig to the bottom and go, okay, you know, you you said you collected the rent, did you really? And you know, you and I talked a little bit before we started the recording here about how you know, the difference between a C and a B minus, a lot of times is just bookkeeping. You know, you've got a property that, that your parents bought and they gave it to you and you really not in the property management business. You don't really care. You kind of know a little bit. The property manager kind of gives a rat's butt, but not really. And at the end of the day, you, you've, you've got a property that you're trying to dispose of and, and it's not a bad property. It's just horribly accounted for. And sometimes those are some of the great deals that you can find because there's really nothing wrong with the fundamentals. It has to do with, with how you organize that. And you, you went into a little bit more about some of the systems that you put into place that you ensure that regardless of what property you're buying, whether it is a C minus or a C plus, by the time it's done, it's, so, it's, it's, it's tracked and it's accounted for. What are some of the procedures that you commonly see people do that show their inexperience in the property management that, that shows you that this could be a great opportunity? You know, the numbers always, always speak what's going on. And then also when you're driving by a property and 
Um, you know, I, I grew up with the real estate business. My dad was an investor since, uh, for, you know, years before I was born in, in multifamily. And when we, I started becoming interested in real estate um, and going to properties and closings and all the stuff with my dad, and he'd be looking at property and he'd go, they said, this is managed. Look at this. There's crap everywhere. This isn't managed. You know what I mean? Like there's some, the guy's there. He's supposed to be the manager. Nothing's managed. You know what I mean? So you see like, you know, right off the bat, before even looking at numbers, you can just tell that what the story is you're getting from a broker who's probably just passing it along uh, from their tenant or from their uh, client, right? From the seller. And when you're looking at these numbers and you're reviewing, you can see, you know, I've, I've got paperwork before, which I, I mean, uh, numbers from properties where the accounting was done on the business bank statement. So like in the margin, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and then I, okay, that's fine. I have no problem doing it, but I have to like, I have to now spend time and like build this or have a, someone help me build this so I can bring it to a bank to get it financed and all this stuff because it's, you know, you have someone that doesn't care about real estate, like you were saying, and they're given a building that's probably already paid off. Right. And they're just getting, you know, a few thousand bucks or 10,000 bucks a month without doing anything. And right. they've been living on it for years. They probably don't care about trying to raise rents. They just want to make sure that it stays, what they're getting in their pocket stays what it is. Right. And, um, you know, they haven't checked any of their contractors. They probably haven't been to the property. Um, they don't care if something's leaking, just that it gets fixed or someone stops complaining. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's where you're finding the deals. Like out of one of the properties we just bought, we just bought a 90 unit and it had um, a 68 with a 22 next to it. And the 22 was being managed by a guy who bought the property. His son-in-law who is now getting divorced from his daughter was charging 15% on a management fee on a 22 unit building. And, you know, we took it over and we put into a portfolio. We were able to get our rate down because we have so many properties in that neighborhood to 3%. So that person was charging and you know, the normal price for that should have been oh, 7%. This guy was charging twice to his father-in-law and right off the bat, you can see that. Hey, but you wait a minute, man. If you can't <laughs> do that to family, I mean, come on, isn't that, isn't that the way the saying goes? Family first, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just, it's just crazy with what you're seeing and what you find when you're going through these properties and you know, you being a sophisticated investor, you might say, wow, this is crazy, but it's also, you know, I was never left the property that was cash flowing five figures into my pocket or my brother's pocket of nine or something like this. Right. So I can't relate, but it's something where you look at it and you say, you find, you know, like you were saying, you're going to find issues that can be cleaned up and you can find um, so many different problems that have just kind of been deferred. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's funny how absent someone is if they're not really honestly asset managing back to what you'd yeah. said, you know, you have to asset manage. It's not that, Hey, I bought this and I got a project manager and now I just spend my time at the beach. That's not how this works. <laughs> uh, and there's so much more that goes into it. It really is a business. Uh, and then you really have two businesses because you have the business of managing partners and managing syndications. You also have the business of managing property managers that manage property, right? Right. So there's really a lot more to it than a lot of people think. But, um, you know, Charles, what would be the one thing that you would want to tell your 2006 self uh, looking at it going, you know, this is what we do want to do more of. And this is what we don't want to do any more of uh, along your real estate journey. Um, I would have bought in better areas. Um, I bought one prop. My dad bought, had a lot of D-class stuff and then he had a lot of stuff that was better. And that was something I stayed out of. He wouldn't let me buy there, but I bought one property that was like C minus area and it was, it was fine. It like, you know, it was gentrifying through and it, it's not, I still own it today. It's not an issue, but it's something where I would have made sure that areas I'm buying in are C plus and above. 
Um, not really too much. And then making sure that when you're buying the properties, um, you know, spend more money for a little better product in different areas. Um, you know, maybe you, instead of being right on the, on the main road, maybe you're a block away from it, or, you know, you're, you're looking at what's the future of that area. So kind of looking, I never, you're not looking to the future 10, 15 years and figuring out what's my goal and where's this property going to be? And is this going to fit what I'm doing and kind of figuring out your goals and working backwards so that you can develop a plan for yourself and your business of uh, how to get there. And, and what would you do? So that was what you, you wouldn't do, right? You would look at buying in better areas. What would you do more of? I would say more planning on what, um, and what my, what my goal is going to be, what goals on the road. Cause back then I was just like, Oh, I just want to, I'm buying property and I'm going to buy some more, I'm going to refinance and buy some more property. And it wasn't very strategic. And um, I would have been more strategic when I'm buying properties, had more set um, parameters and criteria for what I was looking for and making sure the property met that. And uh, of course, like any other investor that you had uh, buy more in 2009, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't we all wish we'd have, we'd have uh, positioned ourselves in six and seven to buy in, in uh, nine and 10, but uh, you know, those are, those are lessons learned. So Charles, as we're closing out, uh, I, I really want to thank you for all the information that you've given us, but I want to be able to have my listeners know where to get a hold of you. First of all, where can they find your podcast and, and tell us the name of that again? Yeah. So my podcast is called Global Investors Podcast. So you can find it on any, on any platform, go to globalinvestorspodcast.com, which is just goes to my website, which is charlescrillo.com. Um, if you're interested in learning more about investing in real estate, whether it's active or passive, uh, contact, go to my website, charlescrillo.com, and you can set up a 30-minute call with me, and uh, we'll talk about what your goals are and what, um, you know, maybe we can work together on future projects. That'd be great. You know, Charles, it's, it's awesome. This is one thing that I, I really love about the multifamily community that impresses me every day is how willing people are to give of their time to help educate to make a better investor. You don't see that in the stock market. You don't, I mean, the only thing people want to do in Forex trading is take your money, right? I mean, cash out <laughs> me this and I'm going to make you a millionaire, right? But, but the reality is in, in the multifamily world, people like you are willing to get to, to take time and to say, hey, let me help educate you. And if you want to work together on a deal, if you want to look at a deal, let's, let's sit down and let's look at a deal and let's see if what I'm looking at is, is lining up with what you're looking at and seeing if we can't put something together. And that is awesome. So, Guys, if you're looking for more information, again, it's charlescarillo.com or Global Investors Podcast. I just went blank, uh, .com. That's, why, that's how you know this is live. I, I just <laughs> myself all the time. So, Charles, thanks again for joining us on the show on the Real Estate Rundown. Guys, tune in for the next episode as we talk about more tips and tricks in real estate with the Real Estate Rundown. Once again, Charles, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right.